Welcome to the Way of Nature podcast. In this conversation, I talk to Professor Brian Brewer. Brian is awesome. I love his energy. He's really fun, capturing some of the lightness of Taoist philosophy. And I have connected with Brian because he has translated C.T. Tsai's comic books. So if you haven't heard of these books before, Tsai is one of Asia's great cartoonists and modern philosophers. And he has done comic book versions of some of the great philosophical texts of ancient China. They're really fun, really accessible. If you haven't read them yet, 100% go get them because I use them all the time as references for my work. And they're just really fun. And Brian has done a great job at translating some of the lightness and fun into English. And in the conversation coming up, you'll get a sense for some of that lightness. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. We talk about chapter one of the Tao Te Ching, as well as the Tao of social transformation. Enjoy. So hello, audience. Welcome to this conversation with Brian Breer. We have him with an amazing backdrop. Brian, what, what is that photo behind you? Hi, George. Uh, this is a photo of Ruyetan, Sun Moon Lake. Sun Moon Lake. Well, that is a very uh, open water image, very in keeping with the topics that we'll talk about. If any of the audience had watched the Zhuangzi video, you'll see just how fun and accessible uh, and just a joy to read they are. Um, and the Dao De Jing, I have um, managed to have a sneak early peek and I can confirm it's a really fantastic resource to be able to see um, you know, both Brian's and, and Ty's uh, interpretations and look on the Dao, uh, which will help any explorer of this fascinating and rich world of Taoist philosophy. Um, so welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to tell us about this book that's coming up and some of your, your wisdom. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, George. Great. Well, Excited to, to get deeper into some of the, the wisdom of the Tao Te Ching and, and some of your work. Um, so let's just start high level for someone who is new to Taoism and they might have heard about it. Um, could you just tell us a bit about what the Tao Te Ching is and a bit about that book? Yeah, the Tao Te Ching dates from around the 5th century BC. Uh, we're not sure exactly how far back it goes, and we're not sure exactly what time it took form. Scholars generally think that it took form over maybe uh, a few centuries. The, some people say it's a collection of sayings. I think it's a bit more than that, uh, because it does seem, seem to have some coherent philosophical content. Uh, it seems to have been written for somebody who was Number one, going to take a position of high power in society. And number two, is interested in cultivating themselves so that they could take that position responsibly. Yes. Yeah. Written over um, multiple centuries. I mean, the, the, the Chinese, and certainly the story that um, Master Gu, my master, tells me is that um, it is written by Lao Tzu. What, what's this sort of evidence of it being written over centuries versus... Um, an individual? Yeah, well, this is a difficult question. We have the earliest copy we have dates to around the third century uh, BC. Uh, and it was dug up out of the ground, but it's only partial. So some people look at this and say, well, this is proof that it accreted over time. Um, that's hard to say because you never know what was going through people's minds when they buried books with dead people. <laughs> uh, so other people see it as a comprehensive, coherent philosophical um, essay. And they take the coherence as evidence that it was written by more or less a single person and that it can be taken as a philosophical book in its own right. I think there is plenty of opportunity within the book. You don't have to read too much into it yourself to see that it can be quite insightful. Um, and as far as I can tell, it's generally free of the kind of contradictions that would indicate that it's not genuine. Yes. So I think it's worth taking, as a philosopher, I think it's worth taking seriously as a philosophical text. Mm. And certainly for you know a diversity of people who find the Tao Te Ching certainly in my life, not knowing hardly anything about Taoism and then finding this, this book full of 
cryptic poems, um, but somehow still resonated with me, despite having been written in ancient China over 2,000 years ago. Let's, let's go on to the kind of the book that we will be discussing, and this is the uh, CC size illustrated comic version of this. Um, the original style of Lao Tzu's, these kind of esoteric, mysterious poems that are kind of like, I can never say this word, a Rorschach blot, where it, uh -huh. it, it's, um, it gives you what you need in that reading. And so it's open enough that you can kind of read into it. Uh, and then we have here an illustrated comic book, uh, which is obviously a different style. And I, I'm guessing with size kind of interpretation and, and your translation. I was wondering um, kind of how did you navigate that? And is that something that you thought about in the creation of uh, this book? Yeah, it's an interesting book in the sense that it's going through two hands of interpretation instead of just one. Uh, normally, a translation goes through the interpretation of the translator. That's unavoidable. Yeah. Uh, in this case, what CC did is he took the classical Chinese language and he wrote a comic book in modern contemporary Chinese. And so when I translated into English, my job was to translate his contemporary Chinese into contemporary English. Uh, but I didn't think it would be very responsible of me for, to do that without an eye to the classical Chinese as well. Uh, so I did both. Uh, and the text as you read it, uh, I think, uh, so one thing we did in this series is we uh, made sure that we included the classical Chinese text in the margins. Uh, and so if you do read some Chinese, you can read along with the classical Chinese and see how it's rendered into English. Uh, and anybody who's able to do that, I think will see that the English actually uh, tracks nicely with the original Chinese from the ancient text. Mm. And supported very beautifully with all these fantastic images. Uh, even here in, in Master Gu's school, we have original Chinese copies of, of size comics. Could you speak about, a bit about the man and, and the influence that he's had in Asia? Right. So CC is a really interesting character. And if you ever have a chance to go to Hangzhou and visit him, I, I recommend that you do that. Uh, he dropped out of school when he was 15, I think. Uh, he set his mind on becoming a professional illustrator. Uh, he sent a submission to a comic book company in Taipei. Uh, they didn't know how old he was, but they hired him on the spot. <laughs> so he left home and that's when he started uh, working and never went back to school. Uh, so if you think about it, here's a man who dropped out of school essentially after middle school and is working with some of the most difficult texts in the tradition. Uh, and the way that he's been able to do that is he is an indefatigable uh, scholar himself. He reads and reads. Uh, if you go to his house, you'll see uh, bookcase after bookcase of uh, collections that he's accumulated over the years. Uh, so I've, wor I've worked and interacted with many scholars in the field, and I've never met anybody as well-read as CC. Uh, so the work he's done, uh, so not only does he understand the material quite well, uh, he has this amazing knack for putting it into simple accessible uh, images that really jump off the page. So I fell in love with these comics when I was, uh, how old was I then? About 22, 21 or 22, I was in Taiwan studying Chinese. Uh, and I saw these books and I uh, fell in love with them immediately. And, and not because I'm a, a longtime comic fan. Uh, I, I grew up reading these, the newspaper comics as opposed to superhero comics. So I, I did have a love for those kind of comics. And, and these resonated with me in that sense that they encapsulate an idea and bring it across in um, a really uh, engaging way. Yes, and that's certainly something, you know, I'm not, I don't have a comic book reading history, but just the effortlessness and, yeah, I've said it a couple of times already, the accessibility of these books to have this ancient wisdom and it's fascinating to hear that, you know, how well read he is and the collections of uh, classics that he has. And then that challenge um, of encapsulating that in, you know, square boxes 
makes me think of you know Calvin and Hobbes, which in my generation yeah. very popular on Reddit. And you know the author of, of those comics is also somewhat of a philosopher, someone who uh, can see into uh, you know how society works and then helps us understand these ideas with images. It's funny you mentioned Calvin and Hobbes because I have I have very few comic books at home besides CCs. But yes. That's what <laughs> that and the Far Side uh, I do have. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful, interesting people. Uh, and certainly in the modern age, you know, despite Calvin and Hobbes being discontinued many years ago, that's something that has lived on. Um, well, maybe let's, let's see some of uh, this work. And um, I think we're going to explore chapter one, which is such a fundamental chapter, you know, exploring the origins of the universe and, and one kind of interpretation and story about that. Um, yeah, I mean, do you want to just go ahead? Is there anything you want to like preface about maybe what this chapter is about and, and how people could think about it before jumping into it? Yeah, I, well, maybe maybe we could start by you. Maybe you can just say a little bit about your impression of chapter one. Is that a good idea? Sure, of course, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The Tao is both named and nameless. Yeah, it's one I've remembered. Um, uh, both named and nameless. Named it is the mother of myriad things. Nameless it is the origin of all. Ever desireless, one can see the mystery itself. With desires, one can only see its manifestations. And to see the mystery is the doorway to all understanding. Yeah, I mean, that first line, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. I mean, what a way to start a, you know, a book called the, the Tao and the way of, of virtue. Uh, uh, to just say, hands up, you know, these aren't the answers here, um, but, you know, you, hopefully the remaining chapters still have some value. Uh, and I think that's right, right. certainly, um, for me, it, it's, it's just an appreciation of complexity and, and um, a reduction of dogmatic um, def defen uh, defense of truth. Um, so, yeah, certainly uh, it's a chapter that I've, found incredibly powerful um, and maybe I can talk more about it as, as I understand yours but yeah very good yeah choice. I think what you mentioned there at the very beginning is a realization of the limits of language uh, so there's a little bit of irony that the book exists at all yes <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but right now I'm working on the next uh, volume in this series which is about Zen Buddhism and there's a story in there that you might be familiar with about uh, a nun who goes to the sixth patriarch of Zen, Huinan, uh, and asks him to explain a little bit of a sutra. And he says, I'm sorry, but I'm illiterate. Uh, could you read it out for me? And she's aghast that this great scholar monk is illiterate. Uh, and she challenges him and said, if you can't understand the words, you know, how can you understand the meaning? Uh, and he says, well, it's like a finger pointing at the moon. Words, uh, the meaning is not in the words themselves. Uh, so you shouldn't mistake the words for the meaning, just like you shouldn't mistake your finger for the moon. And I think this is a good reminder uh, as a person reads the Tao Te Ching that the the lines are not intended to be, as you say, dogmatic, uh, but more like rules of thumb, uh, things to help you point you along the way and help you understand a very complex topic in a way that each person will approach differently. And so the, the insights that you get from it, George, will probably be different from the insights that I get from it. And the insights that I get from it today are probably different from the insights that I got 20 years ago. Uh, and I think in, in this way, when people say that the book is a poem, that's not quite correct uh, because literary, in speaking in terms of just formal literary style, it's not a poem, but it is poetic. And it has that sense that when you read a poem, uh, you get different things out of it over different times. It's suggestive as opposed to uh, just discursively instructive. Yes, and, and having that kind of ex embracing uncertainty rather than, yeah, being forceful with one's truth. Uh, 
kind of matches, I mean, postmodernism, it's not something, you know, big word, but this kind of um, transition from this is how the world works and this is what a country is and these guys are bad, these guys are good, opening up a bit more into the uncertainty of, of both things being true at the same time, good and evil, and, uh, you know, that's chapter two uh, of these judgments. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the one uh, character that you translated uh, as eternal uh, is sometimes translated as constant, which is not a word we use all that much in English, uh, but it has a slightly different meaning from eternal, where eternal is outside of time and always existing. The word constant points more towards a kind of rhythm of the universe, a kind of pattern that's there, but also changing. Uh, and so, whereas eternal sort of has the, an element of something that never changes, uh, the idea of constant has the idea of something that uh, is still there, but is sort of internally changing. So when you think of, I, when I think of Tao, I think of it as the processes of nature, uh, which are always there in the background, but always changing as well. Uh, and so when you mention uncertainty, uh, there's an uncertainty built into how nature works, but also there's a strange level of comfort also, uh, knowing that there are rhythms to nature. Yeah. So, I mean, that question of what is the Tao is kind of a cliche in Taoism. Um, but I mean, so the kind of laws of nature is that, you know, how you, I mean, you and Sai have this beautiful exploration uh, in, um, in, in, the, in the book for chapter one. Have you got um, a copy there? Wow, fantastic. Got, oh, <laughs> can you see it? <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> yeah. I, I printed it out just in case I need to refer to it. I mean, maybe could you talk us through this? Because this is a very interesting. Um, so we've talked about the kind of poetic approach to chapter one, which is kind of the original. Mm-hmm. And then um, the chapter you've done with Sai is, is a dialogue. So maybe could you take us through that? Sure. Would you like me to read it and then talk about it? Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, Chapter one, the ineffable Tao. So we covered the ineffability already. Right, you mentioned it's a dialogue. So one person says to another, uh, the Tao is like this. It does this, and it isn't this. And the student says, oh, I get it. Uh, And then Lao Tzu comes along and says, excuse me, but I believe you are mistaken. If you can clearly explain the Tao, then that is not the Tao. Uh, So this is line one. Uh, which you covered already. The Tao encompasses, Lao Tzu says, the principles of all things. It is formless, silent, has no body, and is enduring. Enduring is that word I just mentioned uh, that could be translated as constant or eternal. This idea cannot be clearly explained through language. Uh, So when he says it's formless, silent, has no body, this is not in the original, of course. The original is just a few characters. Uh, So this is one of the few places in the book where Tsai actually expands in the drawings itself on the ideas. Normally, he just translates it straight up. Uh, but I think here he felt like it's good right at the outset to lay the groundwork so that the reader can understand it uh, and what's going on. On the next page, it continues. Um, they begin asking Lao Tzu now, uh, what do you call this great principle that encompasses all things? And Lao Tzu says, no, 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 it's impossible to give it a name. So that's the second line. Uh, Because if you call it A, then it's not B, you call it white, then it's not black. And here again, Sai's elaborating a little bit uh, to explain. Lao Tzu says, if you want to understand the Tao, you must forsake languages and names You have to understand it through intuitive insight or you'll get lost on the wrong path. As soon as you understand this, you can talk about the beginning of heaven, earth, and all things in between. And then the student starts to get excited and jumps up and down. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tzu goes on, in the beginning, there were no material bodies or even any shapes or forms. We call this state no thingness or nothingness. Nothingness is the underlying substance of the universe, the original source of the universe. Now this, the key term here in Chinese, uh, as you know, is Wu, 
which is hard to translate into English. It can be translated as simply nothing, uh, but it obviously has a bit more pregnant meaning than that. Uh, so to translate it, no thingness gives a sense that there is an inchoateness or an unformedness of the world in the beginning. Um, this seems to be uh, an interpretation of the Tao Te Ching, the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching as a kind of cosmogony, as a beginning of the universe, an explanation of where things came from. This is what philosophers have been asking all over the world for a long time, right? Yeah. Where, where is everything from? Why are we here? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and this is one way to explain that. I was listening to your explanation in the beginning, uh, and it seemed a little bit different from this. Uh, and that's worth talking more about uh, in a second. So let's continue here. When the Tao produced the function of creation, things came forth. This is what we call being. This being is the function of the Tao. So being is uh, a key philosophical term in, in Western philosophy. It's interesting that the word in Chinese that's being translated as being uh, really means just to contain. Uh, there is something in the universe, but there's no pointing at any being per se. This is one of the differences, an interesting difference between Western theory going back to the Greeks who are trying to find the essence of things and Chinese philosopher where they're simply just saying have, meaning contain, meaning there's something around here, but we're not pointing at any particular thing. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the major differences between Chinese philosophy and Western philosophy. Western philosophy focuses on understanding the being itself, whereas Chinese philosophy is understand more of the broader context. Mm. Yes. Continuing on, so when we understand that in the beginning there were no things, we can come to comprehend the subtlety and mystery of the Tao's substance. When we understand that the origin of the many and varied things of the world is being, we can come to comprehend the vastness and limitlessness of the Tao's functioning. Going on to the last page of the chapter, nothing in being. One is the substance, the other is the function. You can say they both come from the Tao. They just have different names is all. They can both be called mysterious, even more mysterious than mysterious. Now this rendering, this interpretation that Tsai gives here is a traditional interpretation. Uh, and it's the kind of interpretation that I studied when I first studied the Tao Te Ching. Um, and it is, like I said, cosmological. Um, one way to understand this chapter is it's explaining the beginning of the universe and where things come from. Um, and, and is in that sense, very metaphysical. But I noticed, uh, and, and so notice in here that there's no mention of the word desire. Whereas in your uh, rendition of chapter one, you mentioned it, you mentioned desire yes. and desirelessness. Yes. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, ever desireless, one can see the mystery itself. With desires, one can only see its manifestations. So, uh, okay, okay. Let's let's talk about that for a second, if you yeah, don't mind. Please. Yeah. Um, so, uh, having no desire means that you can see subtleties in the world. Having desire means that you can see the boundaries in the world. All right, so let me explain that a little bit. Think about what language does for us. Language allows us a purchase on the world. We can point at something and we say, that's a tree. We can say, that's a bird. It helps us capture things and manipulate things and communicate things and just live in the world. And what I think Lao Tzu is saying here is that desire does that for us as well, right? It motivates us to go out and act in the world. Mm -hmm. So there's something good about desire. Mm -hmm. It's not that all desire is bad. Yes. So Lao Tzu uh, often talks about reducing desire as opposed to eliminating it altogether. An interesting thing about the Tao Te Ching is that it's often said to be countercultural, right? That it is, there's a dominant view in society that you should 
uh, struggle to the top and you should get wealth and you should get fame and so on. Uh, you should be more masculine. And Lao Tzu comes along and says, no, you should be more feminine. You should be pliant and so on. Yeah. Um, now it's important to understand that I, th I think that what Lao Tzu is saying here is that it's not you should be feminine exclusively and never be masculine. It's not that you should always um, be the opposite of what society is. I think what he's doing is providing a counterbalance by emphasizing things that aren't normally emphasized. And when he talks about Uyu, about uh, having few desires, uh, he's talking about something similar. Yes. So desire has its good points. It motivates us to go out into the world and to live a life. Um, but what are we forgetting when we concentrate only on desire? We're losing a lot of the subtleties of life, of our connections with the universe. So here he emphasizes reducing desire so that you can see those subtleties. So desire gives us boundaries in the world. We can grasp onto objects that we can make use of things. Reducing desires allows us to sort of meld in, to become one with our surroundings and therefore to be more open and aware to the things that are next to us and around us and that can help us feel more at home in the universe. This is one way of trying to understand chapter one. Yes, that's certainly something that resonates in my life and that's very beautifully said i mean you know the desire to fix myself fix um, <laughs> is what brought me to the data jing um you know i felt something was out of balance and so i had a desire to try and fix um and and so then yeah i think that's a common theme of people coming to spiritual texts and and learning uh um through this desire you know the more you learn the more you, you see it in the world uh, and so in some <laughs> ways the more um you know, in it you can be, um, but then also the over desire, as you said, has that the kind of it goes too far. I have the example of going on a run. You know, back in the day, I'd be competitive and trying to get my personal best, have my Strava right. app on, and you know, I I would see nothing <laughs> except uh, I would see nothing. I would just have one foot in front of another. Um, but now when I run, and maybe it's because I'm lazier than I used to be, um, is because... <laughs> Which it, isn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't think it is. Um, on my runs now, I, I see so much more, and I will stop when there's an insect, and I will stop and look mm. at the tree, and, and much more is brought into the world because I haven't got this one fixation on, on one outcome, which then blinds me to the subtleties, which I think is a fantastic word. Mm. Um, that is all around us, but because we have these desires, we've got the blinkers on and, and can't see. Right, right, right. Yeah, going back to the the line that, that you recited, can you recite that again? So desireless? Ever desireless, one can see the mystery itself with desire. Okay, stop right there. Mm. So the mystery itself mm. sounds like there's one true truth to the world. Again, eternal like there's some kind of God or consciousness behind all things. I think that's a little bit, in my view, a misunderstanding of what's being said here. I don't think uh, one way, let's just say, instead of saying, I think one way of understanding the text is instead of seeing one thing that exists, again, being, this is kind of a Western or even Indian uh, idea, Indo-European idea that there's a being behind all things in the universe. The Chinese idea seems to be more like there's a multiplicity behind all things in the universe that, that instead of a, a cosmogony that where the universe started at one point and then it unfolded to the point we are now, it's really an ongoing process of unfolding that, and you can think about how things uh, are created in the world. The tree grows up from a seed, it sprouts fruit, the fruit falls to the ground, it rots, it goes into the soil and then it comes up again as another tree, this ongoing process where things are inchoate, unformed, and then they form and then they disintegrate. Again, this seems to be what I think what Louds is talking about here, an ongoing process. And if we can uh, realize that and become more in tune with that, then we can live a fuller uh, life. Yes, that's interesting. And I, I wonder, because a question I was going to have is the compatibility of this kind of story of how the world works um, 
with science. Because on the one hand, there's the people that say that this chapter is quite in keeping with kind of the Big Bang theory and, and it's kind uh -huh. of in co uh, contradiction to what you're saying. I, I like what you're saying because the chapter that I've recited has this origin, which implies a starting point, um, which is one interpretation, which is scientists like the Tao. The Tao can kind of um, sit around science because uh, does, it doesn't claim so much that it can't include current scientific thinking. Um, but then there's this kind of cyclical element as well, which is that there are no set start and end points uh, in nature. Uh, that is just a kind of construct of, of our minds. So, yeah, what, what's your thought on the compatibility with science and those two different interpretations? Um, yeah. I don't think they're incompatible interpretations. I think you can see it both ways. Uh, and I think you're right that the, the Tao Te Ching is not contradictory when it comes to contemporary science. Um, I hesitate to look at ancient texts and say, oh, they obviously understood nuclear physics just like we do. <laughs> I, I think that's going a bit too far. Um, as long as there are insights to be had that we can apply today, I think that's the important thing. So when it comes to cycles, I think that uh, is something we can take away from it. Uh, when I see, when I think of a cycle, I think visually uh, of a circle going around, um, which in a way doesn't really lead anywhere. It doesn't show any progress uh, and it doesn't show a lot of differentiation. You, you end where you started. Yes. Um, I think a different way to see a cycle is as like a sine curve where it's going like this, where there are peaks and troughs. Um, there's a saying in, in Chinese that you might have heard, PG uh, Tai uh, So when something very bad happens, there's something good happening coming around the corner. Yes. Uh, and then there's the opposite of that as well. <laughs> uh, and the idea is that you don't want to get too caught up in whatever is happening at the moment, because if you are indeed part of the cycle, then something uh, is going to change down the road and see they're going to get better if it's bad now or it's going to get worse if it's good now. Uh, and to have that kind of uh, distance from the current moment is important. So I think Taoism is very interesting that it allows you to enjoy the moment and encourages you in to enjoy the moment, but it also gives you a kind of distance from the moment. And both of these sort of work in concert uh, to allow you to understand things and to live in the world in a way that is constructive and meaningful. Mm. Uh, could you expand on distance from the moment? What do you mean by that? Right. So if you can get some perspective on what's happening at the moment, uh, you don't feel too caught up in it. Uh, in other words, when he talks about desire, desire is how you get caught up uh, in things. Uh, and by having fewer desires, you're able to distance yourself. You're not being led around by the nose in a sense. Yes, very interesting. And, and you talked about, you know, the kind of, it, if the text can still be useful today, um, and, you know, obviously it's got 81 chapters full of, of wisdom. Um, in terms of this idea of the Tao, what would you see, you know, in your own life? Or, uh, you know, what, what's the significance of, of understanding the world in this way that we've discussed? Uh, well, Taoism, is, I think, is valuable in, in many ways to a contemporary life um, because it does offer this kind of yin and yang of perspective and momentariness. Uh, so if you think of in, in Zhuangzi, there were the stories of the people who had a high level of skill, uh, like the person cutting up the cow or the person catching cicadas. And they're obviously in the moment. Right, they're totally focused on one particular thing. So when you're doing your Tai Chi, uh, I'm thinking you're probably pretty focused on one particular thing. And there's something that's in, incredibly rewarding about that. In the moment, it's like you're not even there. Uh, so it's hard to say it's rewarding in the moment, um, but afterwards <laughs> uh, you, you have this feeling like, wow, that was, that was an incredible experience. Uh, and and the, you can make certain achievements also when you're in that experience. Uh, so that kind of being able to focus on the moment uh, is a valuable aspect of life. And it's impossible to do if we're constantly concerned about the future or 
regretful about the past. So this is what I mean about the momentariness. Um, but we can't live like that all the time. Um, there are concerns in life. There are things we have to get done. Uh, by, so by being able to take a step back and seeing how things are interconnected and seeing how patterns evolve by seeing how things recur and by seeing how things disintegrate, we can, I think, have a little bit more wisdom about how to live our life day to day. Very well said. Yeah, that's certainly, yeah, perspective in, in my kind of journey of trying to learn more about myself and uh, I, I personified my negative thinking as the underminer, uh, which is a little mm. evil wizard that, um, you know, is the voice in my head that brings me down and gives me pain. And I, I look on it with more kindness now. One, because I feel like it's part of the Tao, um, and the Tao is so complex I can't control everything. So it's okay to have some bonkers thoughts come into my mind. Um, but also, I, yeah, very well said, you know, the... the the in the moment and also the perspective as well, which is that my underminer is scared right now of you know worrying about the future or I made a mistake in the past, and just taking that step back um, and having the Tao Te Ching to help create that space um, has been yeah in incredibly transformative, uh, and certainly you know for many people over centuries and centuries, which I guess is why it survived down the, the generations and was buried in that third century BC. Um, uh, tomb, I'm sure in the afterlife will have similar sort of issues um, uh, that, you know, it still has significance for our lives today. Fantastic. That's chapter one. And I think maybe we'll just briefly go on to another topic, which is social transformation. And interesting, you talk about counterculture, and it does seem you have this dominant Confucian uh, uh, way that the society set up with kind of power and striving and desire um, and kind of formal structures and then Taoism being in a reaction to that and I think environmentalists uh, in particular are drawn to Taoism because of this understanding that we've talked about that we all come from the Tao and we aren't just alien visitors on a dead planet the plants and animals the myriad things that we see around us are of the same type of intelligence and same type of stuff, being and non-being that, that we are made up of. Uh, and so that connection. Um, I mean, the Tao Te Ching is interesting because it does seem to be written ex explicitly advising emperors about how to return the kingdom back to, to, to balance, the empire back to balance, and does give some kind of specifics on how to do that. It does feel that we are quite far from the way of nature in our kind of society where we exploit natural resources and human time to make goods and services mm -hmm. in order to continue desires rather than mm -hmm. creating a society where we meet our needs and uh, you know support each other and being content with who we are now um, so I mean there's stuff that if Laos was about today would probably have a long list to um, you know wag the finger at and um, how, how does a Taoist go about social transformation? Uh, um, yeah, what, what was the Taoist approach to try and return back to the way of nature? Yeah, this is a good question. And it confused me for quite a long time until I, I felt like I had a, a better understanding of what Taoists like Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi um, are up to. Maybe just a quick academic point uh, that in Lao Tzu's time, there was no term Taoism. Uh, that is something that was applied later. And because some aspects of the Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi seem to overlap, then people say, oh, let's call them the same kind of thing. Uh, we'll call them Taoists. Uh, but it's interesting that um, many philosophers in that period used the word Tao. Even later uh, in Zen Buddhism, um, they're constantly referring to Tao, uh, to the proper way of being in tune with society and with nature. Uh, so it's a very interesting and useful term uh, to indicate, uh, a, like you said, a proper balance between the individual and society and the individual and nature. Uh, and depending on which school of Chinese thought you're talking about, one of those can be emphasized more than another. So when it comes to 
okay, I'm getting an understanding of Tao Te Ching and I feel like there should be better balance in the world. What does that mean for me? Uh, and how can I go out and be a force for good in society? Uh, well, of course, Lao Tzu would right away caution against wanting to be a force for good, right? Because that can turn right back on you uh, and have unintended consequences. Um, so there's um, a notion that's buried a little bit uh, in Taoism of pluralism, that there should be a diversity. Um, there, there is a diversity in the world. Uh, there are patterns, but within those patterns, uh, there's also um, uh, a kind of individuality. So if you look, for example, um, if you have a maple seed, a seed for a maple tree, um, and you plant it and you nurture it, it will grow into a maple tree. Uh, it won't grow into an oak tree. It won't grow into a coconut palm. Um, but it will also grow into a different kind of maple tree from the one next to it. It will be the same kind of tree, but it will be, it'll be subtly different. It'll be taller or shorter, have different uh, displays of branches. And, uh, and even the maple leaves themselves uh, will be slightly different. Um, and I think in, in Taoism, there's not as much emphasis on diversity or pluralism in the natural world as there could be when people are talking about it and discussing it. So what does this mean for the individual when I go out and I want to make the world a better place? I think what it means is you really need to understand who you are, uh, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your, what your tendencies are, what your predilections are, uh, and then capitalize on the circumstances you have uh, and not force your way to do something that you think is maybe the right thing to do, but you're not equipped to do. Yes. Um, and to follow that path, so to speak, uh, that is your own and is not somebody else's. So I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to the question, what does a Taoist do in terms of the environment or in terms of social justice? Yes, nature seems to go into uh, a lot of efforts to create uniqueness and yeah, no maple tree is the same and no snowflake is, is, is the same. And, <laughs> you know, every one of our faces is, you know, unique um, despite over 7 billion of us. Um, so it does seem to be, yeah, following nature uh, doesn't exclude individuality as something that has value in its own right. It seems to me if nature put that much effort into making us all unique that is for you know to allow us to express ourselves yeah unfortunately it doesn't allow for easy answers though right you can't just say step one step two step three here's what a Taoist does yes and and one should be wary of the person who has the 10-step plan to save the world because you know a lot of right. evil has been done to uh, in the name of saving <laughs> the world uh, which is Lance's point um, yeah can I just mention one thing so yes. as philosophers we like to raise problems as well as to answer questions yeah um, so here's, here's a bit of um, controversy maybe that's worth thinking about. Suppose that the revolutionaries back in the day had been Taoist. Um, is that a contradiction in terms, right? Where it was Thomas Jefferson just following his own path? Uh, or was he somehow forcing going where he shouldn't have gone, right? His path maybe could have led, her to an, led him to an easier place. Um, and and uh, somebody like MLK, right? Surely, if he was going with the flow, maybe he could have done something that wouldn't have got him killed in the end, uh, or JFK. I, I raise this question with my students sometimes: is is maybe a Taoist path a little bit too comfortable uh, for Taoists? Um, to, to do good. This isn't a question that I have an answer to. Um, I do have some thoughts about it, but I think it's the kind of thing that's worth throwing out there and letting other people think about. Um, if I'm a Taoist, is that really good for society in the end? Is, is Taoism about comfort? You live in the mountains right now, so maybe you can give an answer to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you live a comfortable life there? Yeah, well, certainly an interesting question and is something I, I think about. Um, you know, the, the middle way, uh, you know, is that the easier option? And, you know, it's all good to, um, you know, F the system, whatever a polite version of that is. Uh, but when you get ill, you're very grateful for the Western hospital, which is right. built upon right. the government and um, taxation. And uh, also manipulation of nature to a very high degree. 
Yes, of course. Um, and so, yeah, the question is, is it, it may be in this kind of world that Lao Tzu wanted, one could be a Taoist, but given the complex, uh, interdependent world that we live in on an individual city, household, planet um, level that we live on, then, you know, so for example, I do think about, um, you know, non-action, Wu Wei, with climate change, uh, for example. What is non-action? In opposition to the kind of the steam train locomotive, which is the way we're currently setting ourselves up to extract resources. So is non-action or balance enough force the other direction to come back to balance? <laughs> or is there a, a, a wu-wei, you know, it's an interesting question I'm trying to think about, which is how to not force it while also taking, you know, the, the bridge has been blown up and we're about to drive ourselves off a cliff. So we should stop the train. But then, you know, what? how can we do it? in a Taoist way. Right, right, right. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the easy answer is, well, I can just reduce my own desires uh, and, and make a, a, a little corner for myself in the universe and try to exploit it as little as possible. Um, that's not going to stop the train, obviously, if, if I'm the only one who does it. Um, an interesting thing about the Tao Te Ching is it's not even though there's an interesting focus on the individual and self-cultivation, like we've been talking about, <clears throat> what can I do for myself uh, to bring me into harmony with the universe? It seems to have been written for a ruler. Yeah. Uh, and the ruler in a traditional Chinese sense is not just the dictator of society, but a model for society that people take their cues um, the ruler. And this is something that modern psychology has confirmed as well. Uh, that uh, I don't remember if you, you're probably too young to remember Charles Barkley, uh, the American basketball player. No. He was sort of a bad boy of basketball in the day. Uh, and people said, why don't you act more like a role model? And his answer was, I'm not a role model. Don't take me as a role model. Mm. Um, but the it's an open question. Actually, it's probably not true that you can just say you're not a role model when you're out in front of people because people will naturally take you as a role model. This is how human behavior works. We imitate the people around us, especially those that are well-placed in society. And so what Taoism and Chinese philosophy in general um, focus on is self-cultivation that allows you, as you advance in society, to improve society by improving yourself, that your actions will influence other people's actions. So even, even if I do decide that I'm just going to uh, reduce my desires and I'm going to <clears throat> be frugal and I'm going to live an environmentally responsible life, it's not, it, in the end, it's not just me. I'll be subtly influencing those people around me whether I tried to or not. So is the answer airdropping Dao De Jing copies of your illustrated book with Sai on the White House and Downing Street? <laughs> I don't think that's the answer. <laughs> we just get the book to the top, that's the answer. <laughs> I think that sounds like a very solid answer. Just, if it gets in the right hands, it could work wonders. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I, I do... I mean, I think this is an interesting time because even in the selfish economic worldview, it's becoming increasingly in one's own interest to you know, see nature as something to protect rather than destroy because you know, it's all good having the bar of gold, but if the planet's burning, you can't benefit from it. Um, so um, it does seem the story is changing on, on many levels and that is from individuals, you know, in the boardroom or you know on the internet and kind of the, the students that you have that that is that duh that virtue kind of resonating out um but yeah then the question is is it enough given how fast the locomotive's going yeah and if we remember the sign curve right that things are going up and down and things look pretty bleak now um chances are things will look better down the road but again it depends what your perspective is, right? So if we take an anthropomorphic perspective or an anthropological, what's the right word? Anthropocentric, that's the word. <laughs> if we take an anthropocentric perspective, 
um, then things look pretty bleak for humanity right now. Um, but is that the right perspective or the only perspective? People say we're destroying the earth. I don't think we're destroying the earth. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the earth will be fine. And, and I'm sure there'll be beautiful three-eyed, bright yellow fish, <laughs> like in the Simpsons coming out of the, the nuclear wasteland. It, it's partly a selfish desire. But I mean, the Taoists do see you know, humans as something, you know, that does, I mean, it depends on the interpretation, but like uh, heaven is good, earth is good, and humans are good. There does seem to be some um, elevation of humankind. Is that something you'd agree with? Uh, elevation, um, I think a, a realization that humanity has its value yeah. Yeah, is, uh, is, is in there. I'm not sure what more to say beyond that. Um, there, there are other competing passages, the, like Earth treats us as straw dogs. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's a this this actually passage is open to quite a bit of controversy. What is what does it mean to say that we're treated as straw dogs? Does it mean that we're um, invaluable or uh, not valuable in the big picture of things? Uh, that that humans are not elevated above other creatures, uh, and there are different ways that people try to um, come to terms with this passage. Uh, but there seems to be there's a few passages in the Tao Te Ching that suggest that. Um, there's a, what's the right word, impartiality yeah. uh, to nature. Yeah. Uh, and that hu humans, um, we have our perspective, and of course, we're valuable from that perspective. But from the broader perspective of nature, um, we are just another part uh, of the universe. That's certainly what resonates with me, and yeah, it's interesting. I think um, the work of Jane Goodall that I've read, um, you know, the work with chimpanzees and seeing how they had things that we previously thought were exclusive to humans, like personalities, right. which all dog owners right. know, of course, different dogs have different right. personalities. Um, and yeah, our intelligence is you know, only different in degree rather than kind. Um, certainly something that resonates with me. Well, I think we could talk forever because you're such an interesting uh, person with so, so much wisdom and insight. Um, but that was a yeah, very rich conversation. I feel like we got very deep with the Tao and its characteristics and um, yeah, quite, quite a clear lesson and takeaway from social transformation, which is fire the Tao Te Ching, uh, a copy of your book onto the White House and Downing Street and uh, <laughs> the capitals around the world. Right. <laughs> I'm glad that's the conclusion of our conversation. <laughs> well, I hope uh, people watching this conversation enjoyed it. Um, I, I can't recommend these books enough. I think it's just an excellent um, kind of tool in your toolkit of, of understanding uh, the wisdom from, and it's not just the Tao Te Ching, which is going to be out uh, either on the day that this interview is released or, or, or soon. Uh, but there's also the Analects and Zhuangzi, um, and they're all very fun to read. And uh, Brian, I think you've really done a fantastic job at keeping the humor and the lightness. And yeah, it's really fantastic what you've done. So thank you for all the work that you do and for this conversation. Yeah, well, thank you for the attention. It's, uh, it's great to talk about this kind of thing. It's my favorite thing to do. So All right. All the best, Brian. Thank you. Take care, George. Bye now.